You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. The airlock is sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. Welcome back, Nerdlings. Patrick, how are you? I'm 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 doing okay. I, I will say that, uh, you know, when people steal your shtick, it kind of mm-hmm. upsets you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my shtick is to sit here taking notes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when I see a guest sitting there taking notes, I'm just like, really, dude? Really? You're going to get one-upped by, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, I have to say, though, that is this is deeply on brand for, for this week's guest, because if there's any, like, consistent narrative, I think, in the writer community about Derek Kunskin, it's that he is the most together on top of his, his shit person that you are likely to meet. So, hi, Derek. How's, hi. how's, how's it going? <laughs> It's great, and I, I have you, you just, have you written our evaluations yet? <laughs> Not yet, but they're almost done. Yeah, uh, good. <laughs> your introductions to me are just getting better and better. <laughs> uh, so yeah, on the on the subject of multiple introductions, this is the second time we've had Derek on because he's extremely busy writing books and getting them published, and uh, most particularly the third book in the Quantum Evolution series, The Quantum War, just came out a couple months ago, and. I, I was all prepared to talk to you about how does it feel to complete your trilogy? And then I went, oh, no. Oh, no, it's not a trilogy. So De- Derek, who hurt you? This just, <laughs> just, just, keep, just keeps going. And and the reviews and the, the people who are like, oh, no, what's going to happen to my... And I, I'm not going to say anything further because we want people to read the book so that they, too, can be on tenterhooks. But, but Derek, Derek, you're supposed to do three and then take a nap and... And you just, did you not get the notes? <laughs> I um I wanted to do three. I told my editor there were three, and then at some point I realized that there was a like the to tell the whole story it would take four. And luckily my my editor at that point was like, Hey Derek, you got any more books we you know you'd be looking to to have done? And so it, it was happy circumstance. But yeah, yeah. I, I did not set out to do a tetralogy, but there we are. Is this a Robert Jordan thing where you pitched three, they decided they wanted six, but you're actually going to do like 14? I hope it's not that because um, <laughs> there's a death in there somewhere that I don't like. Let's just. That's true. Um, yeah. Let's not do that part. Yeah. 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 I don't want to mimic that particular um, real life torn from the headline story <laughs> arc. <laughs> but I mean, really in, in seriousness, I think it's interesting that, that, you know, despite the fact that I've, I have pitched you as this tremendously organized, very on top of it, always sort of knows where you're going and you're, you're skate towards the puck where the puck is going to be, so to speak, to, to borrow a Gretzkyism there, that that's that's very much who you are and a lot of the work that you do. And the idea that you had discovered through your writing that, no, this this series doesn't have the ending that you thought it, it deserves a different ending. It needs a different ending. To to be totally honest, yeah. it's going to have the ending I wanted, but there was a problem in that... Did he just vanish? When, when I... Pardon? You vanished. You, you Your video completely vanished on us. Your video, your audio, everything. Oh, it's I teleported. Um, it's fascinating. It's now the second time it's happened. The first time is, I thought yeah. I was having a stroke. Now we're having a very well-timed mutual stroke. Um, <laughs> so, <third. laughs> so, so go ahead and turn your video off, because I'm wondering All if right. you're having bandwidth issues. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, 
And I'm still here. You're cool. still there. Yes. Yeah. Now answer Tracy's question. Okay. <laughs> so the ending um, that I wanted is still going to happen. But what I realized was that there was a middle portion of that story that was larger than I wanted. And basically, Quantum Magician started with a status quo interstellar-wise, like technologically and, and everything else. And then that status quo was broken. And then I needed two books to get into the consequences of all of the way the status quo got broken and how it, it deals with things. And um, like one was on the tech side, but one was on the evolution side. Like literally what's, what's it going to be like when human evolution is part of, you know, a sort of military struggle um, before I get to where I ultimately want to go. So it, it just, a, a book dropped into the middle rather than the ending changing. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, there's a sense that you can't, you can't get to the ending the story needs without doing your due diligence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, Quantum War is about what happens with the sort of political and military consequences of, you know, this rebellion that started in book one. Mm -hmm. um, and not finishing that, I, f I feel, would have made the story a little, like, feel a little um, like there were holes in it. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would be very much not the Derek Kunskin brand. We do not leave holes in things. <laughs> we, we don't. Um, unless, of course, it's ice fishing, which we were teasing you about simply because we're terrible people. But that was the green room. So <laughs> <laughs> but at least there were no brown M&Ms. Oh, or was it green M&Ms I had asked not to have? I can't remember anymore. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. It's, you're, 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 you had an extensive writer. It was, it was stressful. I yeah. don't under I don't understand necessarily the ice fishing reference. I have never understood ice fishing as a sport <laughs> because I can just go to my refrigerator and get ice. I don't have to like go try to catch it on a lake. <laughs> so, so Tracy, you have to get all of these dad jokes all of the time. Oh like, yeah, it's it's um, <laughs> again on the on the continuing subject of brands. My brand is long suffering long-winded um uh, you know patrick's brand is um i i, I he's really anything sort of to like, make you laugh that's he's my brand agent of chaos i think is really um kind of where he's coming from there's that chaos muppets and order muppets there's that whole sort of like matrix that exists and i i don't i'm not naturally suited to being an order muppet i really am a chaos muppet by nature but i think it's not easy being green. yeah it wouldn't it, it wouldn't work if one of us wasn't willing to be the order muppet um so yeah well, I, when when uh Paul McCartney originally started as a guitarist. And then when they had no bassist, they're like, I don't want to do it. And then John said, I don't want to do it. And then McCartney was like, okay, fine guys, I'll do it. So yeah, yeah there you go. To that, I guess going on too. I mean, it's a little bit like in fairness to the whole, I mean, Patrick is, is, is the man he is and has had the chance to live and grow into his podcast for far longer than I did. And so really I'm kind of like the, the kid who showed up into the D and D campaign when it was already well underway. And there was like a, like someone, yeah, someone was going to move or someone was going to go off to college or whatever, and they weren't able to continue their character. And so they're like, okay, how we write in the new character? They're like, uh, um, we could always do cleric. <laughs> so <laughs> sort of what happened. Yeah. They were like, hey, we could, um, could you patch a hole here? We need, we need somebody who could do these things. And sure. None of which, none of which explains ice fishing to me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I, I think we need to, um, 
I think there's there's something here. I mean, we are we are speaking to um, an experienced Canadian. I don't know what the distinction is between an experienced Canadian and an inexperienced Canadian. I guess an inexperienced Canadian is like a recent immigrant. Um, but we are speaking to an experienced Canadian, and I, I feel that as also an author of um, of science fiction you know, dwelling in space and a lot of sort of like space opera and, and military space conceits and things going on there. There's something about like the vastness of space and also like the vastness of Canada to, to, <laughs> to think about there. I remember vividly having a conversation with, I think it was Brandon Crilly at a con mm-hmm. and be like, how, how long did it take for you to get here? And he's like, oh, it wasn't much of a drive. It was like 13 hours. And I just looked at him like I would sooner die. <laughs> um, they'd be like, just how? It's just and they're like, well, they made United it sound like he'd gone out for milk. Yeah, the United States is actually not that much smaller than Canada. I think no, it isn't, but we're wimps. Yeah, but, but like, I think it's something like a ten percent difference, right? It's just you guys have a lot more people. You have mm. ten times the population. So when you're driving to see somebody, you're going to find them much sooner than we will. Yeah, yeah there's actually, more people just uh, literally I've lying done around. An Eighteen-hour drive before. Yeah, yeah, I've in done one an 18 day. Eighteen-hour drive before. Yeah, I'm yeah. driving to. I'm yeah. I'm intending to drive to WorldCon, so Ottawa to Washington should be nine hour drive or ten hour drive. Okay, okay. I mean, that's nine nine ten hour. I mean, I've done that. You mean it's mm-hmm. split up into like a couple goes, not not like overnight to overnight, but like you know, you stop in the middle and you you, you gas up and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think there's there's something to be said for the whole world of science fiction set in space is this like resource management why did we go there what do we have there it's hard to live here how do we mm-hmm. make it work kind of framework for world building um because like space space the only thing it has in abundance is space sort of um which is you know seems not not ironic May have accessible metals and lots of energy too it's true yeah in fairness if, to physics if if the argument for us leaving the planet is we need space you know, we're going to run out here. It's way cheaper mm-hmm. to take your Mars base and build it a kilometer offshore of the, yeah. you know, and then just do that. I mean, it's way easier. Yeah. Um, it would be easier to build condos in the, in Antarctica than on Mars. Um, it's like, so the argument for us needing to go because we're running out of space is, is mm-hmm. I think a, a sort of assumption or a false assumption we've been carrying around in science fiction for so long because yeah. Malthusian thinking is so old too, that, I mean, if we just made every, like, if we just cut cattle, you know, uh, from everybody's diet, all of a sudden we could carry, you know, a lot more people on the planet, a lot more sustainably. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but I think we're partly going to space in science fiction for a bit of the escapism, the adventure, the fun, the exploration, mm-hmm. the sense of wonder. Yeah, well, the romance of space is sort of a funky thing. I, I, I sometimes, not as often as people might assume I would, use Ray Bradbury's fiction in in my classes with my students, and um, a lot of times my my students have read his work. Uh, bits from the Martian Chronicles, for instance, and they sort of turn their nose up at it a little bit. They're like, "Well, it's it's pretty and stuff, but he's so dumb that he thinks that like this is how Mars is, or like this is how space works." <laughs> and I have to point out to him that while at the point of of you know human space travel uh, and human scientific evolution that we were at during Bradbury's you know lifetime writing that particular book and those particular stories, we personally as humans hadn't put ourselves into space yet. 
that we did know a lot about Mars at that point. Like nobody expected canals, even in the 1950s. Like we knew better. It was, it's, it's a romance. It's, it's a love song to an imagined fantasy of space. And it's part of, it's part of that uh, escapism you're talking about. But, but when, when did, when did, I remember someone like looked through the telescope and saw the canals on Mars. Like when was that? 1880s, I think. And nobody was ever able to replicate it, but yeah, by yeah, then yeah. it was already, you know, part of the public consciousness because of, you know, the pulps and everything else. Sure. Was there was there like a spider inside the telescope that had a web and and that just kind of put the canals on Mars? Like, uh, I don't know. I think it was happening while he was ice fishing. <laughs> <laughs> the steam of his breath did something. Yeah, to to the glasses and to the lenses as well. Um, but there's, I mean. God, man, ice fishing. I have I have uh, <laughs> relatives in northern Michigan who have who have done ice fishing, um, and I I have to say I struggle to find the appeal as someone who is cold literally all the time. Yeah. Um, let alone if there are actual legitimate atmospheric reasons to be cold. Um, so the idea of like I know I'm going to take this reciprocating saw and make a big hole in this lake which is probably frozen over enough that i'm not gonna fall in and die seems legit i'm gonna sit here in this lawn chair bundled up for a while but and that's just, why you have the hut right and you have the hut and so, you know it'll break the wind a little bit it'll hold in whatever you can afford to do with like a kerosene heater or something i was gonna say don't um, some people put little little heaters in there so you're, oh yeah you're, you're oh, yeah, on yeah. the ice and you have something that melts the ice and it contains <laughs> space and I mean, you're at that point, there. it's a it's a race against time isn't it yeah. between like yeah there's there are all this this um i'm gesturing a lot in a way which is great for podcasting everybody's gonna love this this is fantastic I'm persuaded by all of your gestures yes you are sorry audience you're really missing out <laughs> um but all of my gestures would be educating you right now about like the imaginary graph that is like time spent on ice thickness of ice kerosene heater relative suffering to capture fish um, this is really like a four-way graph of some kind. There's like an X and a Y axis and also some You'll bullshit. You'll need to use colors. Yeah, it's going to be a thing. It's going to be I really also a thing. like those graphs that have two different Y axes. Mm, okay. Those are yeah. neat. I've never been able to do one, but I admire them very much. But I think you guys are making ice fishing sound more, you know, moment to moment exciting than it really is. Okay, um, but it, it's like, it's just like boredom turned into a well, sport. Now I'm I'm gonna throw <laughs> something out there. When when I was when I was little, and we were in California, you had Millerton Lake, and then you know there's a dam there, Millerton Dam, and then the water that comes out of Millerton Dam goes into Lost Lake, which then kind of trickles out and becomes a river. And a thing that people did was they would go fishing at Lost Lake. So my, oh my brother God, fishing at Lost Lake me. sounds like the beginning of a slasher film. So my I'm brother gonna, decides yeah. to take me at like nine, 10 years old, something like that, uh, out to Lost Lake on a summer day when the heat gets up to like 110. And he's going to teach me about fishing, the most boring thing in the whole wide world for a nine or 10 year old kid at this point, who also is pale because he's Irish and he burns and hates the heat and would much rather be inside reading a book. But he's going to take me out to this lost lake and and I'm not allowed to get in the water. I'm not allowed to splash the water because it'll scare the fish. And he gave me uh, Del Taco. Okay. And Orange Gatorade. So this was, this was an entire recipe for disaster. 
<laughs> from start to finish. Now, as boring as that was, what I think ice fishing does, it's like extreme fishing because now you have you have the cold, you have the danger of the ice, and then you add to the danger by having the heater there that could, you know, if it was 10,000 times stronger, do something to the ice under your feet and melt it. So that's what I'm thinking. But is like, to it's a like... Canadian, it's not extreme. Extreme has to be something you don't see all the time, right? And I mean, it's like... <laughs> So I, I have a river across the street from me, and when the ice gets solid and I see cars driving on it, then I walk out, and every so often I stop beside a fishing hut, and I'm like, so how's the fishing going, or something like that, and every so often I also ask them, like, what thickness, like, how are you sure your car's not going to go in, and they're like, <laughs> as soon as you've got four inches of ice, mm -hmm. apparently that's enough to drive a car yeah, on, I guess yeah. partly the buoyancy, partly the strength of the ice, but... um no, they all seem to be, it, it seems to be like sort of a camping, like camping without sleeping out there sort of thing. It's like you oh, go oh, day camping yeah. almost. So yeah. so you have a river right next door? Uh, right across the street, yeah. Uh, I have a park right across the street, and then that park is on the Ottawa River. In In the middle of the night, do you go walking in your sleep to the <sighs> river of <laughs> I'm going to, in case, in case the audience didn't hear that. <sighs> yeah. And so I was going to check <laughs> yeah. it. Like I was watching for Tracy's expressions and I'm wondering if there's some text here I'm supposed to understand, or is this another dad joke? Is this a, no, this is a Billy Joel song reference. Oh, that's yeah. not even a good Billy Joel song. Through the temple song, of truth. I, it, the river I, so deep. There's a whole other layer of suffering here that Patrick doesn't even know he's visiting <laughs> on to me because I was through a chain of events which makes utterly no sense whatever part of a uh choral singing group in my mm -hmm. high school um the chain of events by the way that makes no sense whatever was my boyfriend um who is oh, now I my do husband. know this story oh yeah i think i think we did this like in a like in a just us episode at one point no. um and so anyway we uh he he was in the singing group and uh, I was just like his ride to school because I had a car and he didn't. Um, and so I would drop him off at this like ass o'clock in the morning, you know, sunrise singer group and then do my homework outside waiting for him to be done and then go and do the normal school day. And I guess they were short a bunch of altos. Like they just didn't have enough to put together a decent choir that year. Mm -hmm. And so the choir director calls me in and she's like, you, this. And she like hits a couple notes on the piano and asks me to match them and has me sing a couple bars of God knows what. And she's like, good enough. Um, literally <laughs> what she said, good enough. Um, so I appreciate that she didn't oversell the situation to me. Um, but one of the first pieces that I had to sing that was arranged was that one, which I don't even remember what the hell it's called. What, what but, even is that song? Uh, River uh, Dreams. River yeah. Dreams. Yeah. Yeah. That, that one came out in the nineties and I'm like, Billy Joel is way past his best mm. years then. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it wasn't, it wasn't that great. It wasn't that great. You know, I, but it was catchy and it and it and it caught and it was played quite a bit and now yeah. it's caught us too which you know thank you Patrick. i'm trying to thank i'm you. trying to sort of cleanse the palate of my mind with piano man instead oh that uh, works yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We'll sing i song. can yeah, do man. it in the background while we're still talking and i don't need to focus on it much and it keeps that other song out this is that this is that ability to sort of um work on multiple tracks at once that makes you good <laughs> at what you do Derek. So i i i 
I'm going back to the whole idea of when you see cars going out onto the ice and, um, and you hear the a, cracking a number of years ago, I was lucky enough to, to get to go to the town where for those of you who know, uh, Neil Gaiman's work and know American gods know that there's a whole oh. sequence in American gods where, um, and I never watched the television show beyond a couple of episodes. So I don't know if it ever gets represented in the show. Um, there's a it whole does. sequence. They do a good job. Okay, yeah. There's a whole sequence in American Gods where the main character Shadow ends up in a small town, um, and the small town has this tradition of taking junker cars. And there's a junker car every winter that gets um, driven or towed or whichever it is out into the center of this lake. Um, and then over time, it just as the ice melts, uh, it will eventually collapse into the lake and shoot through the ice. And there are people who just lay bets on when it's going to happen as a, as a sort of a fundraiser for things in the community. And uh, I had the opportunity to end up in the town that gave rise to this story idea because it literally happens in this town. Um, just Gaiman put his own dark twist on how there is there is something sinister about the car. Um, that's eventually discovered. And uh, I remember being with the, the the folks who invited me up there and they gestured towards the, they were like, that's the lake with the car thing. And I went, the car thing? And it took a moment for the marble to drop. And then it did. And I went like, oh, I'm like, how many cars are down there? And they're like, no idea. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. So. So yeah, I'm interested in one thing, Tracy. Hmm. So you explained that vignette from American Gods. And I'm just curious, how many of your listeners do you think have not read American Gods or seen the TV show? You know, I... Because I'm wondering the, if that's a very small number. I, I have no idea. If it's a super small number, though, then that's I, almost like Tracy explaining. I will throw it out. I will, I will throw it out. I will throw it out that I did not read American Gods until a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You I have think... read it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry? You have read it, Patrick. Mm-hmm. I have, but it, it, I mean, it... It was at the anniversary, like okay, okay. It was the anniversary edition or something is when I read it, like the tenth yeah. or twentieth or whatever, however long ago it was published. Yeah, um, I read it. I read it because um, it shared a narrator with a with an audiobook that I really loved, uh, oh. George Godall. And I love George Godall, and he, he narrated uh, the audiobook for American Gods, and I was I was all in, um, and it was a great audiobook experience. So I wonder if I have the same audiobook because I um, I I've read American Gods probably five or six times by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I most recently have it now on Audible because I, I do most of my stuff by audio now. Yeah. So I wonder which yeah. version I've got. I, I finally got into that and then the other one never Neverwhere? Oh yeah, Neverwhere's fun. Because I had dated someone who loved Gaiman and mm-hmm. couldn't believe that I had never read those books. Neverwhere is a has a really interesting origin story, and I guess it's you know, a funny backdoor way that we kind of bring it up here because your your novels have had an interesting origin story with how they they started in um in a, not Apex um, Apex does other oh analog yeah 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 they sort of started in analog and then sort mm-hmm. of you know came to Rebellion Publishing and so on um, but. Neverwhere was originally a television series that ran in five or six parts. I forget which uh, on the BBC. And the, if you were to watch the television series, you would find that it is beat for beat. What happens. In fact, the dialogue itself is beat for beat in almost every way. What happens in the book. But after the, the series was filmed and released, um, 
Gaiman just wasn't really very pleased with how it looked. Um, he he literally felt that it was filmed so that it looked too bright. It didn't look sort of like atmospheric and dingy enough in the right ways. Um, and he just felt like it it didn't it didn't hit the notes he wanted it to. And so he basically took the script for it he wrote and rendered it into a novel. And he's <laughs> it's a weird case of a of a person who wrote a television series novelizing his own television series, and that became air quotes kind of Gaiman's first novel because at that oh, wow. point he, at that point he don't he'd had Sandman in his background he had some short stories in his background um but he had not actually written a novel prior to that um I've um yeah. that's really interesting yeah. I've I've gone from script to prose before myself I wrote mm -hmm. a comic script um for a story called Frankenpuppy and oh. then once once the story is all set up and you've got the script written, it's not very difficult to then like it's almost like working from a, a complete complete outline. Yeah, yeah. And so I I, I wrote it into a story and then uh, sold it to Podcastle. I think it was uh, so. Yeah, it's it's a neat experience. Um, it's almost like a lot of the hard work of breaking the story is already done. Yeah, yeah. You're just kind of figuring out how how exactly since you have to sort of complete painting the picture now, yeah. do you want to do you, it? You have the bones, you just need to add the flesh. Actually, I've done it twice. I did it for another comic story that I had done. And then, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've done that twice. That is really cool. Mm -hmm. So how did you end up in a, in a position where you were writing a script for a comic? Like, did, were you approached for that? Was so... it, yeah. So I started reading comics before I started reading prose. I was handed four comic books by my mother when I was 10. Uh, she had come back from a trip and I had no idea how to read them. Like what order do you do the bubbles? What, where do you start on the page? But um, ultimately comics after about a year and a half led me to the pulps because I was reading John Carter of Mars. And then, you know, how they have those little asterisks, like as seen in last issue, except in this asterisk, it said, as seen in Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And I was completely baffled and I went out and got the book. And then that yeah. was my entryway into sort of non-kids lit. Um, but I've always wanted to write comics, but um, I can't get arrested in comics. I go to Comic-Con and, you know, people won't return my calls. And it's, it's it like, hard. It's difficult. Oh, it's it's tough. And I've, I've gone with like Asimov and analog copies. And I'm like, I'm in here. Like I'm this kind of writer. Yeah. Will you, you I'm interested at all? <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't even know what this is and there's no pictures. And mm -hmm. you know, the nicest of editors from Marvel and DC explained to me that their to be read piles are as brutal as ours, except they're all comic books because they can very, very quickly see if a writer's got chops by doing a five minute comic read rather than reading, let's say a 35 or 40 minute short story. Yeah. Yeah. And even at that, the skill set is different. So I'm I'm actually working with a, a New York editor right now that I hired on the comic stuff and and he's finding all sorts of things I'm doing to tell the story when I'm writing the comic script that he says, well, I can see as a prose writer, that's why you would want to try this, but in comics it won't work this way. And it's not yeah. that I've not read comics all my life. I've read comics all my life, but writing comics is different from reading and writing comics is different from writing prose, short stories and other stuff. So anyway, it's, it's, it's interesting that I've got a bunch of stuff to learn, but it's very possible that I could fall through the ice in my fishing hut before I ever get published, you know, in <laughs> comics. So, you know, I've got some small press stuff here and there, but yeah. what I'm really aiming for is, you know, the sort of pro level sales in comics, but 
And so what, that's just bucket lists and dreams. What were the four comics? Uh, X Uncanny X Men one twenty eight. Uh, so that was the Claremont Burn times. Uh, Fantastic for something like two thirty five. It was a burn issue with the thing in Ego the Planet. It was Doctor Strange thirty four. Um, and they had some weird uh, art that I found really difficult to understand, like wires feet so small, but I didn't even understand what foreshortening was at that point. Um, and then Micronauts uh, 12 uh, with Mike Golden art. And huh. I think it was Bill Mantlow drawing. So, um, yeah, yeah. They, That's it, awesome. it, yeah. The, so the, the first comic that someone gave me that got me into reading comics was G.I. Joe 16 mm-hmm. Style and Interlude. Oh, neat. So not too many years after mine. I'm sorry? Not too many years after mine because G.I. Yeah. Joe was very big in the, what, mid and late 80s, right? Yep. Yeah. And uh, every every single one of them written by Larry Hama. Yeah. And I just remember being blown away by that and then going to uh, Long's Drugs, which was next to Foodland Grocery Store, and riding my bike there and then going and doing the squeaky turny thing. Yeah. Looking for comics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's worth turning it just for the extra squeak. But um, no, Larry Hama is just an example. Like you hear a lot of people talk about how influential he was as a writer. Um, and it's like Marvel was picking up these properties like Star Wars, like Micronauts, mm-hmm. like Rom, the Space Knight, like uh, G.I. Joe. And they were picking these properties up and you'd think they'd just do a crummy job at it, but they put their A-list people on it and they're like, do your absolute best. And so Micronauts as a company, like as a toy company, was way out of business. But the Micronauts series kept on going for, you know, eight years or 10 years or something. And G.I. Joe went on, you know, probably a little after the cartoon. And Rom certainly did as well. Rom, like, so it's interesting to see that the comic company put so much love and TLC into it that they're like they created these vast worlds that are that people wanted to go to when really they were just starting with what can you make with this toy you know yeah and yeah. it's so neat yeah. that is funny so I mean we're definitely living in a in a world now too for um speculative fiction writers where there's a lot of crossover between people who are writing in prose at the professional level and folks who are working more and more frequently in comics. Um, I'm starting to think now about like Alyssa Wong, for instance, yeah. has been writing for Marvel for quite some time now. Um, Saladin Ahmed. Yeah. Saladin Ahmed. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, Shauna McGuire, of course, you know, yeah. had, her, had her dream come true in getting to write for X-Men. And uh, also v- really recently, N.K. Jemison has been working on a run for Green Lantern, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think that there's there's something to be said for how those worlds have cross-pollinated. So under the assumption that our uh, aforementioned listening audience, which is broad and deep and no doubt really familiar with interior niche plot lines of Neil Gaiman books are also uh, populated with people who are scouts for, you know, the big comics producers. What are your bucket list? Like if you could wave your magic wand, I would love to write this. Oh, me. Uh, I would love to do Dr. Strange. I think he's like, there's so much to do with that character. Mm -hmm. Um, I had an obscure favorite when I was a kid because I was 
I was buying comics in the 80s, but the Bronze Age, the 70s comics were all accessible to me at secondhand stores, especially the ones that were not very successful. And Son of Satan was one of my favorites. He was just a a weird character. And I've always found that so much could be done with him. And then obviously X-Men. But I mean, if, if something on the DC side, I mean, Dick Grayson is the most popular person in all the DC universe. And so to get a shot to write him would be amazing. But I wouldn't mind doing something with cosmic stuff, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, no, the big two have so many properties that are so yeah. compelling and so interesting. And at the same time, you know, there's, there's, there's work with creator own stuff you can do. And that in the end, a lot of people have told me basically just get an image comic made. And then, you know, mm-hmm. the Marvel and DC editors read those. And, and that's partly why I'm working with a New York editor now to, to see what I can do. The problem there is that, it, it becomes a process of shelling out all that money to make it to make it in the first place. And so you're yeah. carrying on. Uh, it, it's basically like getting a car loan to try and start a, a sort of project, you know, it's yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I, I imagine it's a situation where we talk sometimes about how how industries work and, and how they they have their own kind of um, strange bottom lines or ways of and processing things. It's it's got to feel a little bit like some of the skills and some of the knowledge that you have from publishing and prose in the world of speculative fiction has almost like abandoned you because this is different field. A little bit. So I've gone to Comic-Con in New York where the big two tend to send their editors in 2017, 2018, 2019. And um, yeah, it is, there is definitely a, a dynamic going on where some of the skills that I've got in the novel and the short story world don't necessarily transfer over. And, these people, you know, they, they don't need that many writers anyway, too. So there's there's that as well. Um, and so uh, some of the advice they gave, which I think is valuable, but a little disheartening is just go out and make an image comic, right? But then what you're getting into is, is I have to pay the artist, the editor, the colorist, the, <laughs> like everything, right? And so we're yeah. talking about car loan size, you know, shelling out of money mm-hmm. and, and then hoping that you get that back. So that's sort mm-hmm. of where that is. There are there are other authors out there who are doing similar things now. Mm-hmm. And if, mm-hmm. Tracy, you mentioned some who are writing for comics, but I know, uh, as an example, uh, Travis Herman here locally is taking his uh, book series, the, um, the Ronin series, and is doing that. He's, he's doing a comic project with it and, mm-hmm. and converting it into a comic book. So... I totally get where you're coming from. It, it can be expensive. I, I tried to do a web comic based on my conversations with my cat. And it was a, it was an interesting experience. I, I liked it, but what I didn't like was that I couldn't draw it myself. Mm-hmm. And so I was relying on an artist to draw it and we clashed a lot. And mm-hmm. so that it very quickly became an experience I didn't like. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I think it's it's there's to your point. It's not just shelling out the money. It's also you have to have a decent relationship with the artist. And I think I think too there's a bit that has to happen that you have to be on the looking for the same creative vision, right? Yeah. Um, it's not that like I think about this based on sort of recent history and what's in the news right now with you know uh, get back is coming out. You know the on on uh, everything and. I think, you know, people are like, oh, it's Yoko's fault. And no, you know, Paul was the jerk. And no, John didn't want in anymore. The thing is, I I said to my son, you've got five music or sorry, four musical geniuses. 
who in 1957 and 1962, they were like all in. They're like, this is what we want to do. We want to be rock stars, right? And this is how we're going to do it. And they were all rowing in the same direction. But after a certain time, they all got big enough, they grew enough that they didn't have, they didn't need each other. And then they could think about other things. And that's at that point when you have a divergence of creative vision about what you want to get done and how you want to get there, then it's not surprising that the band would break up. And I think with the artist too, you know, the, the writer and artist have to be like, have the same creative vision. And if you don't, then yeah, it's going to be very challenging. I, I, I worked with an artist once who had a different creative vision than me and it, it the partnership didn't last very long. Yeah. yeah. There's a great moment in get back where uh, George Martin uh, basically is, is I think he's telling it's either John or Paul. He says, this is this and it, it's in part two. And he says, this is, this is wonderful. Things are going really well because you're actually looking at each other, seeing each other and talking to each other. Wow. <laughs> when your producer has to say that to you yeah. as praise, that's yeah. like faint praise. <laughs> but, but it's, it's his point. It's his point that, that, you know, for the last few albums, they haven't all four been in the same room together working on it. Mm. They weren't doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to do uh, essentially a raw album where mm-hmm. it was, they wrote the songs, they learned the songs, and then they played the songs, and it just was them playing the songs. No double tracking, no backtracking, no adding orchestras and, mm. and doing all this other complex stuff that they had done. It was more about kind of drilling it down to the bare essentials and showing that they were still musicians and still a band and could still play songs together. And then they gave it to Phil Spector. Well, I... I... I think that that I think that that decision, depending on who you listen to and who you who you talk to, because when I say listen, I used to listen to Breakfast with the Beatles quite a bit and listen to a lot of the interviews and and little clips. Uh, You could say that Breakfast with the Beatles and and those things had an agenda. If you wanted to, Mm -hmm. you you could look at that from that standpoint, Mm because it was very John and Yoko centric, those episodes. And because Yoko was an executive producer on it. So she kind of drove the narrative a little bit on those. But um, I, I think that they didn't necessarily have control over it at that time because it, it, it was just a, it was more of a business decision than it was a band decision. So yeah. they, they weren't all very happy with that. Phil Spector. Yeah part of that yeah i love um i love beatles history as a writer because like what we're doing is we're looking at creatives in other fields and the struggles and the wants they've got like you know from 57 to 62 they were just like trying and not getting a recording contract trying and not getting a recording contract and as writers you know we've gone through that it's like we're trying and nobody will buy our stuff you know and then you get their first few store you know songs like you know oh they hit number 17 and that's like one of us hitting like okay we got a a high semi-pro sale or something and it's like they didn't want to go to the states until they had a number one and that you know we've we've made creative decisions as writers like i'm gonna wait until i can get an agent or until i can get this or that and so i mean seeing i i love watching the beatles history sort of stuff and and seeing the sort of creative and artistic wants that they've got and seeing those like just recognizing that I want some of those same things too. And I have some of those same feelings of like impatience, frustration, eagerness, excitement, like, and, and so it's, it's really neat to see that that despite the fact that they're obviously working in a, in a whole different industry and then became like music gods. Yeah. I will, I will throw out another line from, from that, from get back that Paul says, uh, he, 
he, you know, they're talking about having all the cameras watching them all this time and all the audio and stuff. And, and he says something along the lines of it's going to be hilarious 50 years from now they're going to be saying that because Yoko sat on an amp, it broke up the band. <laughs> wow. How's that for foreshadowing? Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> and Yikes. So much, like, so much of um, the whole Yoko thing, though, I wonder how much of that was driven by misogyny and racism of, you know, the 70s and just the the awfulness of the british press oh yeah too. oh yeah and they they talk about that as well because they they're actually sitting around reading what the press is writing about them and going but this never happened yeah this never happened can we sue them what can we do yeah. and like their their pr person's going no really you can't like, yeah it's just a waste yeah. of money you can't sue yeah. them yeah so yeah. it, it's uh, <laughs> we're getting kind of into get back a little bit because I picked it in our yeah. last episode. It was my pick. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm absolutely loving it. I'm adoring that. And anything like that that kind of shows us a candid view. And to your point, the the just the creativity and, and how the creativity is sparked. Another great comment that I can pull out of that is when Paul and John are talking about how they used to be in a room together almost 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. They were on the road, they were traveling, they were in hotel rooms, they were doing all this stuff to be Beatles. And that lent to them sitting down with a notebook and going, you know, well, what about this? What about that? And just writing songs constantly. And now they're at the point where like they're sitting across the room from each other and one's asking the other, do you have anything? Well, I've got a little <laughs> something. Okay, well, let me hear it. And then they play a little something. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Like, it's a completely different dynamic yeah. from, from what it used to be, because now they're not in a room together all the time. They're not traveling all the time. They're not at, you know, joined at the hip anymore. Yeah. And, and that causes tension as well. Mm -hmm. it, I, I still like looking back on that period. And before I do, I like to cleanse my palate by remembering um, a Ringo quote, which is, you know, Ringo, what's the best thing about being in the Beatles? And he's like, I have four brothers. You know, we're four brothers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you start from that and then look at Beatles history and you just look at it through the lens of brothers who may or may not get along all the time because nobody does, um, then you can you can sort of forgive the sort of snipes and this and that because for four brothers to get along for 13 years of the pressure they had must have been enormous. And, and to kind of bring it back to what we were talking about a little bit with the creative process and working with an artist, it, it always fascinates me. And I think Tracy knows this when we have someone on who co-writes something with someone, because that dynamic of co-writing to me is fascinating. Like mm -hmm. I, 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 I can see that as just full of pitfalls, <laughs> right? Because you've got, there's so much that goes into you that now, nah, how do I put this? I'm cause I'm, I'm getting tongue tied. There's so much of yourself that goes into your writing and, and you put so much into it and it's bad enough when you have, uh, you know, critique partners or editors or somebody telling, you no, this doesn't work, but then to actually sit across a table from someone else who's going to be writing it with you and them going, no, I don't like this, or I want to change this, or I want to do this. Well, Ooh. if you put so much of yourself into your work, the question starts to become, is there space for someone else in it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah which is kind of 
kind of daunting. Like I'm, I'm always impressed by people who do these things mm-hmm. and, I talked to and co-write. I talked to Saladin Ahmed um, after he uh, after he had started uh, doing Black Bolt and other stuff, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, writing prose was such a solitary exercise for him. And obviously, yeah. he's a fantastic prose writer. But um, writing comics, he said, he loved the the fact that he was getting emails all the time from the editor, from the you know the letterer, the artist, you know, and that there was this this process going on. And he said it was so much. Like it was energizing, and I thought, what an interesting, what an interesting perspective from somebody who's done both sides. Oh yeah, I think I think if you get into a good collaborative dynamic, that can absolutely energize you. Yeah, I, I just don't know that everybody's wired to do that. Maybe think, not. Uh, maybe maybe not. You know, I I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn here, but I think this might be a great time to to jump to picks of the week because I think I have a pick that's going to totally piggyback off of this. <laughs> All right, so we'll do Picks of the Week. Picks of the Week. All right, so obviously I was really eager to to get in on this sort of conversation we're having about the creative process and, you know, how to to get various people involved in it and its sort of pitfalls and and all of that. And uh, backing up a little bit, folks who've been listening for a while are aware that uh, my husband and I were watching The Good Place. And we wrapped up watching it uh, this past summer. And we ended up in this situation where Deirdre, uh, our 10-year-old daughter, invited herself into us watching The Good Place. And so it became this threesome of, of us watching it together. My daughter is Good Place obsessed. And entirely by accident, Uh, commuting to work one day, I discovered that there is a good place, the podcast. (laughs) And the podcast is quite, it started apparently around the time that the second season ended. So it's a couple of years old. And it was hosted by Mark Evan Jackson, who is the actor who portrays Sean, who folks who are familiar, this is, this is niche stuff. This is kind of like going back to the, to the um, American gods thing here. But if you know the good place, you know what I'm talking about. Tracy's planning. Yep, there we go. Um, it's it's a semi-professional skill. So this it's being hosted by this guy who's one of the actors in a recurring way on the show. And every what its format is every single episode of The Good Place gets its own episode of the podcast. And the function of that episode is to talk about the creative process behind that episode and the behind the scenes of it and to invite a particular couple of guests. Uh, sometimes it's a producer, sometimes it's a director, sometimes it's writer's room people, sometimes it's actors. And to talk to them about their contributions to that episode and things. And Deirdre has become obsessed with the Good Place podcast. Not obsessed enough with it to listen to it herself because she is a master of efficiency. And so she has assigned it to me as basically homework. When I pick her up from the Y at the end of the school day, she's like, what did you learn on the podcast today? It's like I'm being quizzed. Before I can ask her what she learned at school, she has to to find out. And so, uh, but it honestly has been a remarkable experience and kind of like you were talking about a moment ago, Derek, sort of energizing to hear about how this show that I admire and have enjoyed has this absolutely bonkers creative history behind it. Um, To give a couple quick examples before we move on to other people's picks, um, apparently the Studio City, uh, Universal Studios backlot that hosts The Neighborhood um, where so much of the good place is filmed was infested with raccoons. 
<laughs> like there were raccoons nesting everywhere. And so most times that they're doing any kind of interior scene or street scene in the neighborhood, there are raccoons somewhere on set at that moment. And they may actually have cropped camera angles and stuff specifically to avoid that raccoon over there. Um, because they ain't touching it. They're not trying to move it. When you go to your makeup chair, it may be sitting there in it. <laughs> um, and so it, they just had this weird symbiotic relationship with an entire colony of raccoons that were on set through the duration. Um, there's another, uh, I got, I got to find out that entirely by accident, one of the writers ended up being cast as one of the demon characters. Um, and so that was sort of fun. And also various other things about things about characters that were not originally planned. Uh, Janet, apparently, uh, more than 300 people auditioned for the part of Janet. And they included uh, seven-year-old boys, elderly women, um, people of every shape and religion and uh, description that you could possibly imagine. Um, because they had no idea what Janet was going to be. Janet, for a while, was just going to be a voice coming out of a computer terminal. Hmm. And then they decided that Janet would be embodied in some kind of physical human form, but they weren't committed to what that form would look like. And that ultimately they settled on Darcy Carden because her ability to improv and to just make a lot out of um, a set of lines was sort of ridiculous. And they came up with the idea of bad Janets and things like that because of the twists she would do on certain lines. Um, and so it's it's been fun. If you are the sort of person who may already know The Good Place uh, from having watched it or, you know, don't mind being spoiled on the show, but would love to know how shows are made and how totally ridiculous stuff is happening in the background that you would never know and has been artfully hidden from you. It's a fun listen. What's it called? It's called The Good Place, the podcast. Oh, all right. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Derek, how about you? Um, two things that have given me joy in the last little while. Um, I, uh, I started watching TV again once I once I decided to quit my job and quit my job. So I started, I had had Stargirl on my list of things to watch for a long time, but it just never gotten to it. And it's a delightful show, like low stakes, everybody's trying to be a good guy. You know, it's, it's, um, it was a lot of fun. And I've now gotten my son, my nephew and my niece into it. And they're all making their way through those first two seasons. And then Hawkeye, I was like, my son was super excited that Hawkeye was coming out. And I'm like, Joshua, Hawkeye is the most boring character in the Marvel universe. <laughs> like just, he's, he's not that interesting. I don't want to see a show with that guy. And then he's like, come on, we got to watch one episode. And then I found out that it was, it, quite a lot of it was based on the Matt Fraction, David Aha run. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it turned out that it, I was, my expectations were wildly miscalibrated and it's actually really good. So um, I think we're on episode three right now. So it, yeah, those two things. A lot of on fun. The, on the Stargirl side, did you, in, in your comic book reading, did you ever get into Justice Society of America or Infinity Inc or any of that stuff? Yeah. So I was always um, a bit of a nostalgia nut when I was, you know, in my teens reading comics. And so, yeah, I read a lot of the, you know, as much as I could of the All-Star Squadron on the Timely side and the Invaders on the Marvel side and then the JSA on the DC side. Um, and, and there was also a lot of reprints that I think they were doing in the bronze age because they were trying to keep their copyrights still alive. So, um, yeah, I, I've always been a fan of the JSA and actually I lived through crisis on infinite earths. It was, a uh, 
it was like the first massive crossover um and it happened when i was in grade eight so i was front row seats right age to hear it there's uh there's one of our patrons robert and i tend to private chat about these shows because we don't want to put spoilers in our in our facebook group for the patrons and and one of the things that we talked quite a bit about was star girl because mm-hmm. the the most recent season ended with a a nice little call to the I guess the new reboot of Infinity Inc. Mm-hmm. That's out there. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I I've enjoyed Star Girl. One of the things that was confusing, and Robert and I talked about this a little bit, and I did some research into it, was the timeline. Yeah, because it, it feels like this vintage thing, but like there's really old cars, but they're not that old in the continuity, and then but they also like the kids have cell phones. And so it's like, what's going on? And apparently it's, it's intentional on the part of Jeff Johns. He's, mm-hmm. he, he wants to, to have it feel nostalgic and modern at the same time and kind of call back to when Stargirl first came out in the comics. Well, it's sort and, of like the, the Batman, the animated series had a very like uh, art deco yeah. quality yeah. to its art. And like all the all the cars look like 40s and 50s roadsters and things. But there are people with granted brick style cell phones and stuff because it's early 90s. But so, yeah, I mean, that's there's precedent for that where yeah, they're, exactly. they're, it's about they're trying to capture this vibe in the context of the technology that they want. That's a really good way of putting it because yeah, it's not the time that's important. It's the vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as far as Hawkeye goes, you know, a lot of people think that they're, they're setting up the young Avengers Yeah, because they're, they're doing Miss Marvel. They're doing, uh, Oh, I cannot remember her name. Well, they got, they got photon that came out of captain Marvel or no, yep. out of vision and Scarlet yep. witch. And then they have the two kids. Yeah. There's, there's plenty of them. And I mean, yeah, Bishop, enough to do a movie. Kate Bishop is the is the character on Hawkeye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so it's it's just interesting. I I am not a fan of Jeremy Renner in any way, shape, or form. I've always said that I think that he's the kind of actor that Hollywood goes. This is the actor that we want you to pay attention to, and we think is a star, uh, <laughs> even though he can't act and he's as stiff as a wall, and mm-hmm. never really does anything impressive we think that you should like him. So here he is. So we're going to put him in all the things and you should just like him. And I don't. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was the actor or the character that I was less interested in, but because Kate Bishop is there and it's about, it's quite obviously a baton passing thing and, going and, on. And thematically. She, she really is. She a, is. A Haley, whatever her name is. Steinfeld. Steinfeld? Yeah. She reminds She's a singer me. Too. Yeah, she reminds me also of the Selena Gomez in Murders, Only Murders in the Building. I, mm-hmm. I never knew who either one of them were <laughs> before, they all before their respective actors? shows. But I, I like her. She's very comedic and she's a smart yeah. ass. I like smart asses. So. Is that your pick? No, no. I'm just saying, you know, no, my <laughs> pick is actually something different. Uh, I And I may have mentioned this once before a while ago, before it ever launched. Uh, Young Justice Phantoms, which is on HBO Max, they have a lot of episodes have dropped at this point, and I kind of fell behind. And I've been watching a few here recently. Young Justice, to me, is one of the best DC animated shows they've ever made. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely adore it. And it, it deals with 
a lot of stuff. I mean, characters die and they have to deal with it. And uh, it started with these kids. You had Dick Grayson as Robin. You had Wally West as Kid Flash. And they grow up, right? And the team changes. It's basically it's basically Teen Titans, but they're never called Teen Titans. They're mm-hmm. never called Young Justice. They're they're the covert ops team <laughs> for the Justice League under Batman. And you do get an outsiders team eventually, but you never get a Teen Titans. They're never called Titans. They're never called anything like that. Uh, and but it's just interesting to see them grow. So mm-hmm. you know, Dick Grayson started out as Robin. Now he's Nightwing. You've had you've had Jason Todd. You've also had uh, Tim as Robin throughout yeah. most of the episodes and the seasons. And Phantoms is dealing with it. It it's it doesn't feel like it's as big a story as the previous seasons. It, it with the light and and you know the metahuman trafficking and all that kind of stuff that was going on. It feels like it's a much closer and quieter season so far. And they're really focusing on a couple of characters per episode and you get a whole arc with, with Connor and, and McGon, you get an arc with Tigress and Cheshire and, and you just get these little arcs and vignettes. And, and it's just, it's, it's amazing. I, I love this show. I'm so glad they did another season because it's always oh, one of those cool. shows. that's like, it's on the cusp, right? And are we going to get another season or not? And I think we're getting even another one. I think there's going to be another one after this. I'm not hundred percent sure. But uh, Young Justice, it's currently on HBO Max. Young Justice Phantoms is the most recent season, and I'm just really enjoying it. Fantastic. Well, Derek, we've had a we've covered such a wide range of things <laughs> that I'm a little nervous that the listeners may have forgotten what brought you here. So let's not sleep on the third book of the Quantum Evolution series, The Quantum War from Derek Kunskin. Derek, where can folks find you, your really cool works and all the good stuff that you're doing? Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, it's just my name on Twitter. D-E-R-E-K is Derek and then Kunskin, K-U-N-S-K-E-N. Uh, my website is the same thing and, uh, my books are wherever books are sold. And, uh, yeah, the, I, I think that's it. But like, like I said, thanks for having me on the show. This was a super fun conversation. Yeah. It, it, you know, from the Beatles to ice fishing to Neil Gaiman to comic books, it's, uh, yeah, we, we covered the waterfront. Yeah. We really, oh, look, he's bringing it back to the ice in the end. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Derek. No, thank you. This was great. Thanks. And it's that time of the show where the episode is over, but you want more. Well, you can't stay here, but you don't have to go home either. Unless you want to go home, in which case you can totally go home. But you still need something to listen to, right? Because this episode is over. Well, have I got a deal for you. It's called Beyond the Trope. And it's a podcast that's eerily similar to this one. Hmm. Anyway, Giles and Michelle are the forces behind Beyond the Trope. And they have a new episode every week, just like we have a new episode every week. They talk with best-selling authors, award-winning actors, and other leaders in the creative community, and then share those interviews over at their website, beyondthetrope.com. Isn't that convenient? So again... If you're looking for something else to listen to now that this episode is over, go check them out at beyondthetrope.com.
They even have a Patreon with extra stuff for people who back them, just like we do. So if you like what they do, visit their Patreon and back them. And as always, if you like what we do, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash functional nerds and back us. We have tons of cool things. Now, I've got this theory about Doctor Who Flux. It all begins back in a 1976 episode in the Tom Baker... Wait, wait, no, no, don't, don't fade out. This stuff is important. People want to hear this.